In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The word of the Lord. As many of you know, we're in a series in the book of Genesis. It's going to be the book we're sitting in until Thanksgiving, actually. But this summer, in particular, we're spending time in Genesis 1 and 2. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at um, the big question of how do you know? How do you know what you know? On the basis of what do you believe what you believe? We all have views, we all have opinions, we all have things that we value, think are important, but why? Why do you believe these things? On the basis of what? So as many of you know, today is June 19th. Over 150 years ago, on June 19th, 1865, Union General Granger entered Galveston, Texas with a small army of integrated troops in order to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation that had been brought into law over two years earlier, but slaves in that area had not heard. He brought the news that they were free and brought the troops to enforce it. Those people were free for the first time in their lives. And one year later, they began celebrating a memorial, a celebration that they called Jubilee Day, the day that their freedom was announced and enacted. But were they equal? Not yet. The civil rights movement 100 years later, led by Martin Luther King Jr. and others, advanced equality. But as we've even seen two years ago, we are still dealing with the need for racial reconciliation. 
The reckoning that it happened two years ago brought to the fore a lot of the pain and the suffering and the injustices that people in the black community have experienced in America for decades. And we realize there's a continued need for healing, for reconciliation, for true justice, and we keep falling short. We believe that racism is wrong. Not a big battling thing here, right? We also believe that black people and white people are created equal, all races. But on the basis of what? On the basis of what do we believe that? Christianity makes this answer. It's on the basis of God. God created us in his image. And by being made in the image of God, all people, regardless of race or nationality or beauty or talent or ability, from conception to natural death, are equal in value and worth. And that includes black and white. But what about if you disregard God? What if you don't believe in God? Can you argue for the equality of the races or of any people outside of a belief in God? The hard part is this. There is actually no scientific way to prove that there is inherent worth in humanity. There's no, there's no scientific proof that humans are more valuable than animals or than trees. Other than some arguments that are like, we're a little bit more, we're smarter. But then you're just basically saying smarter people are more valuable. Hmm. Basically, from a purely scientific way of approaching things, true atheistic philosophy would say there's actually no right and wrong. There's no such thing as moral truth. You can't prove it. It's an unprovable opinion. And so we say black people and white people are equal or all races are. The question is, on the basis of what? And that gets at two things. The main issues of today are not the ones that you think they are. They're not the ones you're reading in the newspaper. The issues that get you fired up, that you emotionally respond to. The issues of the past 100 years and the next 100 years in our culture and in Christianity are anthropology and authority. You've heard me talk about this. We're going to keep talking about it. Anthropology is this, what does it mean to be human? Who are we, why are we here? We talk a lot nowadays about human identity, my identity, that's anthropology. Worth and dignity of human beings. The purpose that we're here, does life have meaning? And it's also the more hot button issues of race, sexuality, gender, the beginning of life and the end of life. All of that has to do with what does it mean to be human but the question underneath all of that is authority. On the basis of what do you believe what you believe? Do you do what you do? What is the main source of your worldview? In the past, if you lived in the past or in other places in the world, in the past it was often the, the, the authority was tradition. So in some cultures, like in Eastern traditions, that value ancestors and community, the authority was what everyone has always believed. That is the authority. So what everyone has always believed is what we believe. And in many traditional cultures as well, you have religion, a belief in God or the gods, the writings of the gods. And some version of religion was the foundation or is the foundation for why you believe what you believe. When the Enlightenment came along, the philosophers of the Enlightenment wanted to cast off tradition and religion, and they instead appealed to natural law. It is self-evident. But as atheist philosophers 100 years later argued, nothing is self-evident. 
And even that is a belief, that natural law is a belief in a God that created. Today, we've thrown off tradition, religion, even natural law. We are moral relativists. That basically means that there's no absolute right and wrong. Moral relativism is no absolute right and wrong. And everything is culturally conditioned, meaning if you lived in another culture, another place, another time, you would have a different set of views. No one has a right to say which one is right. That's why all religions are equal, all viewpoints are equal. Everyone's allowed to have their own opinion. And in America, we take moral relativism a step further with radical individualism. Everyone is free to do whatever they want so long as it makes them happy. And so when we say something like, look, racism is wrong. All people are created equal. You have to take out created. The question is still on the basis of what? We no longer live with a common authority. And, and honestly, nearly every irreconcilable difference in our culture today, the ones that you're having arguments with your family members, it actually boils down to what authority? On the basis of what do you believe what you believe? And most often, we're arguing past each other because we start with different authority sources. So all of our social and political divisions, nearly all of our moral and ethical issues, and even the issues on which Christians disagree at times, boil down to what authority or authorities are you basing it on? So I actually think even beyond anthropology, what does it mean to be human, the, the real issue is, what is your authority? What is your authority is the primary issue. And most of us are actually pretty unaware or unself-aware of our authorities and the things that we're basing our lives on. So here's an example that I heard once um, of how we can be unaware of and even argue past each other. I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, the medical syndrome called Cotard syndrome or the Cotard delusion. It's not a very common one, thankfully. It's also known as the walking dead syndrome. It is when a person has the delusion that they're actually dead. They're alive by the rest of us and our standards, but in their delusion, they believe they're dead. So if you have a good friend who's got the Cotard delusion going on, you're thinking, okay, this isn't good for him. I need to go convince him that he's alive. So let's say you just take your, your best abilities, you go with these medical books, biology books, human anatomy books, and you read to him the parts that describe what dis determines whether somebody is alive or dead. And you're like, look, people who are alive have a heartbeat. That's kind of the medical definition. The heart stops beating. And when the heart stops beating, the blood stops flowing. So you say, okay, do you see that? And he agrees with you. Oh, okay, yeah. People who are alive have heartbeats and bleed. Once he agrees with that, you take the pin that you had in your other hand and you stab him in the hand with it. He screams, yells, what are you doing that for? The blood starts gushing out. And you say, okay, what do you think about that? Are you alive or dead? And what will he do? He will say, amazing. All the textbooks are wrong. Dead people do bleed. You're basing your argument on science, medical science. He's giving you an argument based on his experience. He feels dead. You're appealing to reason. He's giving you what he feels. Who's right? We're often unaware of our delusions 
because we're unaware of the influences and authorities we buy into. And this is true of Christians or not. It's true of everyone in the modern world. So let's take Stick Figure Bob. Let's say Stick Figure Bob is a high school rising senior. So he's about 17 years old. He has a lot of influences in his life, right? So think about all the things that influence what he thinks is true about himself, about the world, about why he's here. His parents and family, his peers, media, culture, the culture in which he lives, the modern world. If you're a 21st century 17-year-old, it's different than one from 80 years ago. Social media influences him, his grades. He wants good grades. But he also has some religion, some God, some faith in God. He has goals. He has desires. He definitely has feelings. He's 17. But my guess is, like any one of us, he will have, amongst all these influences, some primary authorities. These authorities will be the things that are the most important to him, the things that shape what he actually thinks the most. So let's say his primary authorities are his parents. He really cares what they think about him his grades, because he wants to get into a good college. But he also believes in God, and that has an impact on him. But then his feelings and desires are pretty powerful right now. Let's say that Bob is put into a situation where now he's been dating a girl pretty seriously for two years, and he's trying to debate whether or not he should have sex with her. How will he end up making a decision on that? It'll be based on which authorities are his prime authority. If it's God or his parents, he might choose one thing. But what if it's his feelings? That's his authority. What do you think he's going to do? So what influences you? Are you aware? What is your main authority? When you're in a conflict, a decision-making conflict, even when you're deciding politics, theology. What wins when you're conflicted? Which one has veto power in your life? Which controls you? The modern world is relativistic and individualistic. But Christianity believes there is an authority, and that authority is God. We read it in Genesis 1, right from the beginning. God is being asserted as not just the creator, which is obviously true, but as a result, as the authority for all of life. In Genesis 1, I'm going to read from various portions that Carolyn just read for us. Just hear the words, the rhythm of what's being said, and the ones that I've underlined in the passage. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So he created them, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over everything. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So think about some of the things that we're getting here, the, the assertions that are being made by the author of Genesis. God said, and it was so. All things exist by the word of God. God's not over there chanting some incantations. He's not working really hard to build it. It's literally just his will coming forth in his voice. 
Light, there's light. Creatures, there's creatures. Humanity in our image, it is so. God's word expresses God's will and has the power to bring life. And then we also get in here, God calls things by name, right? God calls the light, light. And what we're meant to see here in a Hebrew understanding of things is by naming something, you have authority over it. When we ask the question, who am I, that identity question, God's saying, I'm the one who calls you by name. I will give you an identity. God is the one who blesses, and by blessing, he's giving purpose. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's part of laying out the purpose of creation of humanity. You are here for a reason. My purposes and my will will accomplish what you are truly made for. And God's the one who gives worth and value. God saw that it was good, very good. Not your peers, not how you measure up with other people, not whether people like you even. But what God says about you is that you are worthy. You are good, very good. Do I matter? Ask God. We sum up here in Genesis 1 that God is the source of creation and the authority on all that is true and real. How things were intended to work. How we are to live life to the full. If you want to kind of discern how to live, how to walk through this, it's easy for me to say God is the authority, but here's the Christian view on it. The Christian view kind of boils down like this, very different than Bob. Well, we'll put Bob back in here. The Christian view is that God is where we start. God is the ultimate and final authority. To understand ourselves and interpret the world, we go to God. But how do we know about God? God has fully revealed himself in Christ. We declare that in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know who God is, the God of the universe? Look at Jesus. And Jesus is most fully revealed in his death on the cross. To the extent that life is lived in, in, the, in light of Jesus' death on the cross, you're living in light of God's purposes for humanity. But how do we know about Jesus? How do we know about God? We know about it because of the Bible the testimony to who Jesus is. And the Bible is something that we got over time, given by prophets, people, men who were inspired by God to write things down. And the church, honestly, we have the New Testament because of the church. We have the Old Testament because of the rabbinic community. We rely on the believers through the centuries who have said, this is what you need to know about who God is and how he has revealed himself and what he has done for us in Jesus. And so we go to God's word. We go to the Bible again and again and again. And the Bible is not something we're meant to read just in a closet by ourselves. You can, because of the Holy Spirit, you can get clarity by reading on your own, but we check what we are reading in community. That's what I'm even doing today. I'm preaching publicly, in a sense, for you to challenge me on where I'm wrong. We read in community of a local church and with peers, but we do so not just in a local church, we do so as part of a global church and across history. So what we think we believe about what God's Word says should check, not just with my local church, but with the church historic and global. That's the claim of authority in Christianity. 
And so here, we're going to emphasize that, and we have for the 10 years we've been in existence. We've emphasized Christ as the revelation of who God is, and the Holy Scriptures as the way to understand who God is in Jesus Christ. Now, I think the hard part for many of us, even who claim to be Christians, is that we can say, yes, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe that God is my authority. But we have cultural assumptions and we have personal experiences that all seem to override God as the true authority. Look, every culture has assumptions that shape reality. They shape our beliefs and actions. And in that sense, the idea behind moral relativism that every culture shapes things uniquely is true. There's truth in that. And you can see this. There are things that you assume by, if let's say you grew up in America, as I did, if you grew up in the West, in America, in the past 50 years, there's things you just assume about the way the world is that not everyone in the world agrees on. And those assumptions are things we're often very unaware of. So let me give you an example. In China, they are a collectivist culture, generally speaking, and an honor and shame culture, right? So if you, were, if you grew up in China, if you were from there, you would just know that that's the way it is. Community, collectivist, honor and shame, and that's what matters. In the U.S., we are individualists, and we are merit-based, performance-based. We're success-oriented, success-oriented individualists. I have the right to do what I want, and we all just assume that. We know that. But think about how it plays out in your view on something like, let me hit another hot button issue, on abortion. Okay, abortion is legal in both countries. And until recently in China, the one-child policy was being enforced. But on the basis of what? The basis of it's good for everyone if you only have one child. And not only that, what you found in China for decades was that girls were aborted significantly more often than boys because boys had higher value in an honor and shame culture that valued men over women. So the basis of abortion in that culture was it's good for all and the honor and shame. In the U.S., what's the basis for the, the, the right to abortion? It's choice. It's autonomy. Individualistic mindset that I can do what I want with myself. But we're also success-oriented, performance-oriented. So who's more likely to get aborted? A healthy baby? Or one that maybe has some issues? Isn't going to be as successful. A study that was done from 1995 to 2011 tracked the percentage or the, the, rel- uh, the rate of abortion of an infant that was prenatally diagnosed to have Down syndrome. Two-thirds of prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome were aborted. Two out of three. Because, you know, they're not going to be as successful. It's going to cause trouble. It could be hard. It's a very different set of reasonings. So if you take somebody who is an atheist in both places, they might make the same choice, but for very different reasons. And what I want us to do while I'm saying that is actually just to think about, be aware of, we probably have assumptions about the way things are, the way life works, the way the culture should be, what's right and true. Things that you're like, well, everybody knows this. And they're not necessarily provable. Every culture disagrees with God in some areas. 
including ours. And every person assumes the rightness, the inherent rightness of our way of thinking, the superiority of the culture that we live in. The things that you assume absolutely must be true, the things you assume are absolutely must be true are likely a product of the culture in which you have been formed and shaped. If you grew up in another place, in another time, you'd likely have a whole other set of assumptions and probably think your current ones are irrelevant or wrong. So in 100 years, the things that, that they will think that our culture is completely weird and backwards and laughable. They just will. Every 50 years it happens. Look at things that were believed 50 years ago. Go back 100 years. Look at the views on cigarettes. Now we're like, idiots. They're going to do the same thing with us in 50 to 100 years. All your kind of just clear truths. Our cultural moment is that personal experience and feelings and desires are the main authority. Philosopher Charles Taylor summed it up this way. Our moral positions today are not grounded in any way grounded in reason or the nature of things, but are ultimately just adopted by each of us because we find ourselves drawn to them. No culture has ever done this. Establish norms and values for themselves on the basis of their own authority. We dictate the ultimate values by which we live. And Christians do this too. Look, all of us struggle with this. We decide which parts of Christianity we're going to accept or reject on the basis of what we want or what everyone just knows. Everyone knows this. And so what we do is we put God on trial rather than the other way around. We decide our theology based on our culture. We decide which church we're going to go to based on our feelings. We want somebody to tell us what we already believe. A couple years back, a blogger who self-identified as a Christian summed up the wisdom of the day this way. Well, she summed up how you should live wisely is really what she was doing is you should be so comfortable in your own skin. This is good kind of way of thinking. Be so comfortable in your own skin, your own knowing, that you become more interested in your own joy and freedom than what others think of you. That seems almost right. God should be equally and unequivocally as committed to my happiness as I am. Well, you laugh, but most of us believe that. We make choices like that all the time. wonder why God's not answering my prayers the way I want them to be answered. Isn't he committed to my happiness? But if this is the gospel of self-fulfillment. This is an Americanized gospel. We all want our way and then assume Jesus is cool with it, right? He's got to be. I mean, he's a cool guy. Jen Pollock-Michael, a Christian writer critiquing this blogger, responded this way, the good life, the good life has been radically redefined according to the benefit of the individual. God's glory, society's health, the community's well-being have been displaced. We are all on the throne now. The issue is a lordship issue, and we all, all of us, have a lordship issue. And honestly, the lordship thing, just saying kind of submit to God's purposes, it's easy to say, but it's a lot harder to do, and for some people, it is going to be particularly hard. 
When it's personal, when it comes down to something very personal and you're trying to understand God's purposes and they contradict, it's not easy. So what do I do? What do I do when what God declares across Scripture is understood by the church, historic and global, is contrary to my desires, my experiences, and my culture's view? None of us want to lose control. We don't. And we struggle to trust that God's way is best. And we wonder, how can God be against my happiness? Defining happiness on our own terms. But the Christian version of authority is that even if it's something you really want and is culturally okay and you feel like it's going to make you happy, What matters most and only is what does God say about it? Following Christ is costly. Don't do the Jesus thing because you think it's going to make you happier or more successful or more likable. It's possible, probable, that if you really follow Christ wholeheartedly, you'll be unpopular, maybe even rejected, falsely accused. And in many parts of the world, you will suffer and even die for it. Remember, the cross is the fullest revelation of God. At a minimum, to follow Christ is to die to self. Because you and I are no longer Lord, but he is. The gospel of Jesus Christ challenges every person in every culture. And the gospel is meant to be the glasses by which we view the world and ourselves. We tend to do it the other way around. Is this a Christianity I like based on my experiences and my cultural assumptions? But if God is the authority, we need to listen to him and not our gut. And where we disagree, we need to trust and follow him. And trust is not an easy thing, to trust that God's purposes are better than what I want if they come in conflict. Authority, the authority issue that's underneath of everything is a head issue. It is a head issue because we need to be aware of our assumptions, aware of our influences, aware of the authorities in our life. We need to understand them and learn God's purposes. We need to ask the hard questions about ourselves, our assumptions, and we need to seek God. We need to understand who he is, how he has revealed himself, how how his truth is understood not just about salvation, but about all of life. And not just understood by me today, right now, by myself, but understood across the church globally and historically. So it is a head issue. Your brain has to be a part of it. But more than a head issue, of course, it's a heart issue. We are not primarily thinkers, We are desirers. Good arguments and reason alone, and I mean, I'm giving you some awesome ones today, they cannot change your heart. They cannot change your heart. As Calvin philosophy professor Jamie Smith writes again and again, you are what you love, and you love what you do habitually. You are what you love, and you love most what you do most. 
Our assumptions, our assumptions are cultivated. Our worldview is cultivated. And they're cultivated by the things that we are letting influence us and choosing to be our authorities. What you do, what you are doing, what I am doing is shaping my heart. But God wants your heart. God loves you. He's gone across the centuries to pursue you. And he wants your heart. He wants your heart so that you can actually be free. Free to be who God designed and intended and created you to be. Let's pray. God Almighty, the heavens declare your glory. The sky above proclaims your handiwork. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives our soul. Your testimony, O Lord, is sure. It makes us wise. Your truth, God, is more to be desired than gold. None of us can discern our own errors on our own. Keep us, Lord, from rejecting you and following ourselves. Let our sin and our brokenness not have dominion over us. Let the words of our mouths, the meditations of our heart, the doings of our lives be conformed to your image, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Step by step, you.